državljandi podcast za aktivne državljane. So, good morning, uh, good day. We're in Amsterdam today, so far away from home. Uh, we are attending the 7th Money Lab conference. With us is uh, Lana Schwartz. Oops. See, no editing, just we run. Uh, she's an assistant professor of, of media studies at the University of Virginia. She's researching money and uh, communication technologies. She has a new book out, or the book is coming in 2020. Um, and I want to I want to start by 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 the end of your talk you had yesterday at the conference, and you said that um, in regards to technology and the way it influences uh, society, you said that pay attention to the boring stuff. Um, and let's let's start there. What's boring? Well, I think everything that is important is boring. So, um, you know, there's a, a sociologist named Susan Lee Starr, who's one of my favorite, and she was, she said that she and her collaborators jokingly called themselves the Society of People Interested in Boring Things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've taken tremendous, um, tremendous inspiration for her from her over the years. And basically what she meant is that, you know, if you study let's say a city, you study its sewer system, you study its electrical wires, you study how the lines get drawn on the roads, you can actually learn a lot about culture, you can learn a lot about inequality, you can learn a lot about power, Um, and if you actually pay attention to things that actually make our world go round, Mm -hmm. you can begin to see things other people missed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, that's been financial systems. So, you know, normally when people talk about economic justice or economic fairness, what they're actually, what they tend to talk about is who has money, who doesn't have money, how much the people who have it have, how they got it, um, you know, what the levels of inequality are. What I'm more interested in is what are the systems that let us access and move our money around Mm -hmm. where do those systems fall apart Mm. so you know i'm an american so i've mostly studied the visa mastercard network and the way that it works in the united states along with other financial systems Mm -hmm. um but who are the people who for whatever reason aren't allowed to access or suddenly find themselves unable to access um their payment Mm. objects um so you can have a you know reasonable minimum wage say but if there's a million fees associated with mm. actually paying for things, um, or if you can't send money to the people you want to send money to, mm. having money is mm. in some ways irrelevant. Um, so I think that that studying the boring, making the invisible visible, um, and really trying to attune yourself to um, infrastructure, infrastructures all around us can be pretty relevatory. Mm. And y- you also talk about the the Libra cryptocurrency mm. cryptocurrency system, and uh, it was a bit funny uh, because there were several talks about Libra, and you were all in a way apologizing that between the the booking part <laughs> for the conference <laughs> and the actual conference, everything went sideways uh-huh. with Libra. Uh-huh. Um, is that um, is that something that that prevents researchers of putting their, I'm not going to say putting their foot down, but but actually analyzing what's going on. Is it all happening too fast for for science to catch up? 
So I do think these cycles are getting faster and faster. So like the life and death cycle of something like a cryptocurrency um, can be just a matter of months or weeks. And certainly Libra seemed to be dead before it was even born. Mm. So um, I do think these are getting faster and that is a challenge as a scholar. Um, I think as a researcher, it's one thing to sort of design a talk that I, where I prepare to offer some initial speculative remarks about Libra and then rehash them um, you know, day of or the day before. Um, but I think that as for in terms of actual research and actual scholarship, I think it all depends on methods. Mm. So it's not so much that science or social science can't keep up. It's that we have to be able to account for contingency in the way mm -hmm. that we study things. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think you can actually learn quite a bit about failures, say, or about why things don't take off. Mm. Um, and we just have to be careful not to be seduced by the hype mm. um, and, and know that when we're studying what cryptocurrency advocates say about their product that we're studying the hype. We're mm. studying the discourse. We're not taking everything they say as real. Okay. okay. So how is the blockchain hype different from other hypes? D did we have did we have any notion going in is this going to be like the like the I don't know car industry? Is this going to be like the tech industry? Well, I think one thing that's different about the blockchain hype is that people are coming to it knowing about the history of um, of, of previous hypes. Well, okay. how, can, how can I put this again? Yeah. <laughs> I know you're like, no edits. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, everyone has heard about the, you know, 90s.com bubble. Everyone had heard about the more recent social media, you know, craze. Um, we're almost self-consciously living in an era where we expect disruption. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, by definition, disruption is supposed to be something you don't expect. Okay. But it's now, at least in like crypto world, blockchain world, um, it's, it's people who have come together looking for disruption mm. and trying to stay ahead of it. Mm. And I think in some part that is influenced by Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So no one, few people thought that Bitcoin would um, become would trade for the prices it eventually wound up trading mm. for. And I think seeing that skyrocket um, over the years and some people become quite wealthy, at least on paper, um, led to a lot of what I've called uh, C-suite FOMO. So like CEOs, CFOs, um, <laughs> fear of missing out. Mm. Um, and, if, and, and they want to be sure that they're staying on top of, of technology. Mm -hmm. um, they're staying ahead of the curb. They're embracing disruption before it happens. So that's kind of a a, a funny way of, of, it's like anticipated disruption. Mm. Um, and I think that it has also come at a time, at least on the, the side of, of blockchain and the kind of by corporations and companies, um, when a lot of big firms are losing talent mm -hmm. um, to technology companies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's there was a headlines in the last couple of years in like the New York Times about mm. how Wall Street um, was was attracting fewer and fewer um, top graduates from the Ivy League universities because mm -hmm. they all wanted to go to Silicon Valley. Mm. So if you're a big bank, if you're a an old school corporation, if you have a lot of money, mm -hmm. um, 
but you're seen as kind of a dinosaur. You're seen as kind of slow moving. You're seen as the past. Mm. And you want to seem cool. And you want to try to um, lure interesting young people who want to do cutting edge things. Put a blockchain on it. Mm. <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, so I think mm. like the, the blockchain kind of came pre-packaged mm-hmm. with its own... Um, vision of disruption and its Mm. own vision of futurity Mm. um and in some cases you know i think that that i i think that it 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 so much was it it depends so much on on its vision of it being disruptive that i think um in in many i don't know i'm like (laughs) you're not um so yeah so it's come so um prepackaged with this with its sense of its own destiny mm-hmm. and I think it's going to have a hard time living up to that hype mm-hmm. I mean has that already happened so did mm-hmm. the blockchain bubble already burst mm-hmm. I mean you had this period in, in 2018 where basically all you needed was a white paper and mm-hmm. everybody was throwing millions at mm-hmm. you then everything collapsed mm-hmm. or a few of the big projects didn't pan out mm-hmm. or people people didn't have the patience to to hodl and and mm-hmm. wait it out <laughs> and then and then everybody was was realizing that oh it's all a scam it's all mm-hmm. it's all just vaporware mm-hmm. um and is is this um is this period now of exciting technology uh, over has mm-hmm. has blockchain already become a boring part of of the system or did it just fizz out and didn't even come to the part where it should become yeah, boring. I don't. I don't think it has mm. become boring, or mm. I don't think it's it's yet found its sense of of purpose. So when I say boring, I kind of mean the things that are so domesticated that we take it for granted, and I don't think we really take blockchain for granted for anything because I don't think it's really found a use case that mm. really matters. I don't know. Do you think of anything that you know blockchain is really used for, and in a way that's like just routinized? Yeah, I mean, I, I heard about some projects even coming from Slovenia that found its niche in 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 a more of a business to business uh, transaction or business to business uh, um, environment Mm -hmm. I haven't seen anything uh, business to customer Mm -hmm. in a way that it's for the end user and that it's actually based on a on a blockchain Mm -hmm. technology yeah, I mean, one thing, and I've written about this um, with my colleague Nancy Bame and um, our former research assistant, who's now a fabulous PhD student, um, Andrea Alarcon. Um, we wrote, uh, we kind of, and this is as kind of like an example of I think pretty good method for studying failure, mm. studying contingency. Um, but we we wrote a, a paper a, where we argue that blockchain is kind of a convening technology, mm-hmm. and what we mean by that is that it it convenes conversations, it mm-hmm. brings people together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we mean that in a, a few specific ways, which I'll talk about. But as a case study, we studied blockchain in the music industry, um, which was Nancy's area of expertise, kind of mm-hmm. technology and music. Mm-hmm. Um, and we watched how, you know, for a while, at every music industry event, there was always a blockchain panel. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there were blockchain summits at places like Harvard and MIT and Berkeley College of Music, you know, these super elite institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened is that people came together who normally do not talk to each other. And if they do mm. talk to each other, they argue. So, hmm. you know, we had, you know, the folks representing artists, the folks representing publishers, the folks representing music labels, um, the folks representing streaming services. And 
they were willing to share the stage mm-hmm. if it was about blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then we studied the kind of proliferation of white papers and unconferences. And, and what we saw is that suddenly, you know, people were able to come together. People were given money to come mm-hmm. together. People were given the legitimacy of these important institutions to come together. And they talked through their problems using blockchain. Mm-hmm. And we observed that they were, because the blockchain was both a specific thing, you know, like, I mean, when you get, you can say mm-hmm. blockchain is anything, but when you get down to it, it is a kind of actually specific technology. Mm-hmm. But it's still kind of open enough to dream with mm-hmm. um, that it allowed them to really describe their problems mm. and and their the problems that they didn't have solutions for mm-hmm. in much more concrete terms. Okay. And to give names to things that mm-hmm. had previously been nameless. Okay. And to try to envision how it could be implemented on a blockchain. Mm. Ultimately, some interesting projects came out of that. Mm-hmm. None of them use a blockchain. Mm. Mm-hmm. But those interesting projects that are the beginnings of boring, mm-hmm. much more boring than blockchain-based mm-hmm. solutions um, that might actually create a more equitable or more functional music industry anyway, mm-hmm. um, may not that may not have existed otherwise if the blockchain hadn't brought diverse people, money, legitimacy, mm-hmm. and then had this way of, of being concrete enough to mm-hmm. actually talk through, but open enough to dream with. Mm-hmm. So I do think yeah. we may see like a whole round, like across industries, mm-hmm. um, we may see a whole round of post-blockchain projects okay. um, that have nothing to do with the blockchain, but wouldn't have existed if we hadn't had blockchain as a mm. f- as a social formation. Because mm. I'm uh, hearing you speak, I, I'm reminded about the debate that was going on ten years ago, and that was around the time where everybody was very excited about e-voting and online mm-hmm. voting and mm-hmm. digital democracy and e-democracy, which used similar um, similar pitches, mm-hmm. I would say, as, as the blockchain. You know, people will go online, they'll vote, they won't mm-hmm. have any need to go out into the world, they'll just vote from, uh, from their sofa. Mm-hmm. And they were saying basically the same thing, technology will solve social problems mm-hmm. of political mm-hmm. inactivity, passivity and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, so, uh, speaking about your talk and, and, and um, another another theme that, that uh, really chimed with me was that you s- you talk about technology as the new money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe if you could just expand on that. Um, well, I mean, I argue that money is sort of fundamentally a technology, and in specific, I mean a, a media technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether it's paper currency, um, which is does many of the same things historians and sociologists describe paper media as mm-hmm. doing. So, you know, um, Benedict Anderson is famous for talking about how newspapers really helped um, with the emergence of the nation state. So mm-hmm. if you had uh, a territorial network of people who were all reading the same news, speaking the same language, um, they having a, a shared sense of themselves as mm-hmm. a reading public, mm-hmm. um, that gave them a shared sense as, as kind of a nation. I mean, that's a very historically grounded argument, but, mm. um, you know, that at that moment. Um, and at the same time, print currencies and national currencies were coming into mm-hmm. view. So, you know, these currencies um, were emblazoned with visions of, of a national shared history mm-hmm. um, and a national shared future. Mm-hmm. So in the United mm-hmm. States, for example, where I'm from, um, the 
state currency, U.S. national currency, did not fully consolidate until after the Civil War, mm. so the 1860s. Mm -hmm. um, before that, there were numerous private currencies circulating, um, numerous uh, foreign currencies, privately issued banknotes, um, local script, um, and and. And at the time, you know, most people were largely illiterate. Mm. But once everyone was using the new U.S. dollar, you know, with the the images that were on it were sort of instructive of mm -hmm. like who we are, where mm -hmm. we come came from, where mm. we're going. Mm. So I always think it's interesting that when the um, EU emerged, they um, figured, you know, had to figure out how to design a currency for mm. this, um, you know, post, you know, multi-state, you know, your uh, economic network, and so. Do you know what's on the European notes? Statues, buildings. So it's it's um, bridges yeah. and arches. Huh. Do you know which ones? Help me out. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of me. a trick question. Okay. Because they're imaginary. Ah, okay. They are. They don't exist anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you know, if you're using a euro in um, Germany, you mm -hmm. may might not want to have pictures of London Bridge. Yes. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so what they do have are these, you know, various kind of architectural periods, mm -hmm. like Gothic, all the way up to modern, that are meant to evoke a shared Europeanness. Mm. So okay. but they're they don't actually exist anywhere. Mm. Um, hmm. So, you know, in that sense, you know, if we really reconsider money as like kind of a shared economic language mm -hmm. or, you know, paper currency um, that does all the things paper money does. And then we move to say, okay, well, what kind of came next? There was the telegraph. And, mm. you know, nowadays we know Western Union, not so much for telegraphy, but mm. for money transfer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then, you know, keep going forward, many of the same technology, so the same IBM computers that were being used to build the early internet in the 70s were the same technologies being used mm. to build the Visa MasterCard mm. network. Mm. And, you know, Visa MasterCard um, was mostly built by IBM and Bank of America in San Francisco, mm -hmm. so um, which at the time was, was not um, a leading center of banking and mm. so in, in many ways it came out of like IT mm -hmm. rather than finance mm. and payments were considered um, kind of a boring but um, less uh, valuable brand part of the banking services like finance mm -hmm. trading um, all of that was what bankers did mm -hmm. and payment was just this kind of computer or consumer financial services mm -hmm. that was you know um, kind of and 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 so now of course you know that that the economy has shifted to being more interested in technology, mm -hmm. um, you know, that the, the payment branch seems all the more um, mm -hmm. relevant. So, and then we move to the future, I mean, to the present. And, and of course, when we talk about um, um, new money technologies, we're mostly talking about things that are coming out of media and communication mm -hmm. and technology industries. Mm -hmm. So if we try, if we kind of look historically and look in the present and we learn to see money as a technological form and as a media and communication technology it opens up all new kinds of questions about you know the the transmission of information mm -hmm. socially guaranteed to be mm -hmm. valuable mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> who has access to it who's cut out of it what happens when we're cut out of it um, what are the politics of the kind of rails that money rides on mm -hmm. so so which uh, which uh, historic lesson of implementing a new payment system did Mark Zuckerberg didn't get with, with Libra. <laughs> um, 
So I think... <laughs> I no, mean, it's so can... so maybe maybe a little yeah. bit of an intro. So yeah, that no, was uh, heralded as a yeah. as a new um, step. Okay, stone I can say something the... about okay? this. Yeah. Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think that the historical lesson that Mark Zuckerberg didn't get when mm -hmm. rolling out Libra um, was that money is it, it should either tell stories mm -hmm. that people want to tell about themselves mm -hmm. or should be very boring. Okay. So, very, you know, Libra, um, somewhat explicitly in some of its materials, was really imagining a post-national imaginary, mm -hmm. you know, a global currency. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, its branding really started, felt like this kind of like, um, platform sovereignty, mm -hmm. like like we're gonna not only be banking with Facebook in some ways, we're members of the nation of Facebook, mm -hmm. um, which I think made people very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And you know, Facebook's brand is pretty toxic right now. Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, there isn't a whole lot of trust. Um, so coming out with this, with this, with a money, a cryptocurrency, a kind of like currency unit that is tied to questions of identity and of trust and of um, um, is, is like kind of a heroic story with Facebook at the center was really came at a bad time. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that happened, though, just mm -hmm. a couple of days ago mm -hmm. um, in the kind of ashes of, of Libra, um, you know, this much more boring technology came out, um, which is called Facebook Pay. Mm -hmm. And all Facebook Pay is, is payment system. Yep. You know, you're not um, denominating things in Libra. It's not this like radical world changing um, vision. No fake bridges no on, fake, on bills. No, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's just a way of, of paying. And mm. many people, you know, in the US already use Venmo. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if um, what, you know, what kinds you of mobile have, systems you have. I think there's uh, N26. Uh, Okay. And there's some similar similar right. types than so Venmo, like, but yeah. It's like PayPal or Apple yeah. Pay. It's just yeah. a payment system inside of Facebook. Um, and and there there isn't that much to say about it. Mm. You know? It's like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I can talk I can send a message to someone on Facebook and I can send them money. It it seems like it will um, seems to make sense. Mm. Um, it's boring. Mm. But and I think that Facebook pay or something like it is far more likely to be successful, at least in the short term, than something that feels more revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Nobody really wants a Facebook revolution right now. Hmm. They just want to maybe be able to send money when they need to. Mm -hmm. Of course, the insidious thing is that Facebook pay comes with many of the same problems that Libra would come with. You mm -hmm. know, it's monopolistic, it's fundamentally rooted in surveillance as everything that Facebook does mm -hmm. is. Um, there's very little recourse um, should you not be able to, you know, be cut off from your money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Facebook isn't isn't famous for its excellent customer mm -hmm. service. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so I think that in some ways by being this big story that seemed revolutionary, Libra sort of damned itself. Mm -hmm. But by being kind of boring and something nobody really uh, thinks there's much to, Facebook Pay could actually be successful, mm -hmm. but could be, um, you know, have have some real perils. Mm -hmm. 
So, so speaking about Libra in, in Facebook, do you think it was intentional? Do you uh, think it was like, okay, first we're going to say we're blowing up the world and then yeah. we're going to say, no, no, we're just blowing up England. Um, or... Yeah, <laughs> I think you can, I mean, I think in general in the world right now, yeah. there's a fine line between thinking someone is playing 4D chess and, mm-hmm. and thinking that someone is really incompetent. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I don't know which is a more dangerous point of view, to think mm. that we're surrounded by evil geniuses or to think that we're surrounded by powerful idiots. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 always say, I always say that the lesser evil would be evil genius because yeah. then at least somebody knows what's going on. Yeah. Right? Because now it's just... It's, everything is out there and you can't have any notion about what... What happens if Facebook Pay fails and they'll realize to scale it down even, even yeah. a little bit? I think the track record seems to lean towards lucky, middlingly competent, not quite idiots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no. I, I don't, I don't, I don't see a lot of evil geniuses in the world, no. or at least in the valley. Okay. And, and <laughs> one final question or one final topic yeah. about the data economy. So mm. on the conference, there was a lot of ideas and, and concept put forward in, in a way of how to monetize the mm-hmm. data or how mm-hmm. to tax it, how to, how to basically um, participate in the mm-hmm. data economy. So what are your thoughts on, on, on that matter? Where is the data economy going? Mm-hmm. Um, how, how it connects with, we're seeing a lot of, even in the US, in mm-hmm. California, with, with uh, new privacy preposition, I mean, legislature that, that puts mm-hmm. uh, focus on personal data and mm-hmm. uh, data of users. Yeah, one thing I think about um, with the data economy a lot is I wonder if it's a bubble. Like, I wonder if all the best laid plans for using, monetizing, valuing data um, are going to kind of turn out to to not be that much. So, okay. I mean, right now, most data is just kind of advertising, like targeted yeah. ads. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know that the targeted ads are any better than ads have ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things we see a lot in the tech industry is companies that are not at all profitable. Mm -hmm. Um, And in many cases, the goal is not to be profitable. The Mm -hmm. goal is to get to scale. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're able to do that because they, their most of their money comes from angel investors Mm -hmm. and venture capitalists, et cetera. Um, And so in some ways the data economy hasn't really proven itself as something that can truly make money without um, the constant support of venture mm-hmm. capitalists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually am a little bit scared of that because mm-hmm. I, for example, really like things like YouTube, you know, <laughs> like, like, you know, my, uh, and I like things like, you know, being able to use Skype for free to, mm-hmm. um, you know, contact, not Skype, but uh, WhatsApp for free mm-hmm. to like contact my mother so that she can talk to my daughter. Um, I think we live our lives through social media and what happens if it, if, you know, this is kind of provocative, but what happens if it sort of goes away mm-hmm. because the bottom falls out of the data economy? Okay. Um, so that's kind of a provocation, yeah. um, but I do, and, and and you know, one thing that we're kind of seeing now with Instagram, for example, mm-hmm. is that you know they're in the U.S. They're starting to roll out hiding likes, mm-hmm. um, 
And, and one of the reasons for that people have suggested, I mean, the reason they say is like for self-esteem. And mm-hmm. so young people don't feel bad about themselves. Mm-hmm. But um, if you look at the, you know, mega influencers or, you know, people who have a big following, mm-hmm. it will still say you and thousands of others liked mm-hmm. this picture. So, you mm-hmm. know, that, that doesn't really help my self-esteem. No. But one of the reasons why people... Um, have suggested that Instagram is doing this is that they would rather cut out influencers entirely and sell advertising and data more directly to brands. Mm -hmm. And that actually this kind of influencer economy um, is, is less efficient, less effective and more costly and just going back to traditional advertising strategies of mm-hmm. working with brands might actually be um, easier mm-hmm. and better mm. um, and, and make money should that be something Instagram decides it needs to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder about the future of the so-called data economy um, when if, if what we're seeing is a trend to what I've begun thinking about is like the mass mediafication of social media mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where a eventually we're it's kind of more like having a tv than mm-hmm. it is like um um this super on demand mm. you know super tailored and then i i wonder if the hyper targeted market segments will begin to fall apart and they'll find that it's just as effective to profile people on fairly basic um information mm-hmm. so it, it we might not need as much data mm-hmm. or you know hmm. the the hype cycle keeps going and they'll you know keep finding more and more uses and maybe advertising is just the beginning but that's just something i like to keep in mind mm-hmm. um in terms of regulation i mean i do think that the u.s is behind in terms of thinking about data protection mm-hmm. um i think one of the most important questions for data protection is being able to predict what your data will be used for mm-hmm. um, and and it's all of its eventual audiences um, you know a lot of my students I teach university students they often say things like um, you know I I have nothing to hide so why should I be concerned about my data mm. um, but then when we read and again some of these are somewhat hypey and dystopian and um you know accounts of like the chinese social credit system Mm -hmm. for example Mm -hmm. um and they they start to think you know that that if their data could be used for things that they never realized um so like you know if they if at some point in the future someone decides that it's more credit worthy to have um not purchase the latest iPhone, right? Or someone decides it's more credit worthy to have purchased the latest iPhone Mm -hmm. and there's no way to predict what the kind Mm -hmm. of future systems will be. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to react to them. Mm. Um, So I think that that in some ways just like data protection like is meaningless if we don't think about it in terms of of uh, if we aren't able to anticipate how it will be used. Mm. And, and one final topic. So, so data protection and personal data yeah. is becoming more and more an issue between two or several huge business conglomerates. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the protection of the personal data is being more and more, or, or currently it's being focused on, on the user itself. Mm-hmm. So the user has to pay attention 
to click or not mm-hmm, to click, mm-hmm. to approve or not mm-hmm. to approve, to share or not to share. Um, th- that puts us, the users, in an unfair position in a way that it creates this this perception that if you're not going to do it, there's no institution, there's no mm-hmm. system, there's no, you're basically a man with a gun mm-hmm. in, a, in a jungle. <laughs> um, and we're seeing now trends of, of that moving away from, from the concept and, and bringing back the industry, sort of speak, or the government to, to, to be in charge mm-hmm. or to regulate that field mm-hmm. and to, to move away from this self-regulation, co-regulation mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, system. Mm-hmm. So what do you think it's gonna is going to happen there is it going to be always you know the user has to be behind the wheel of a car mm-hmm. or is it going to be more of the user is a customer in a taxi and the government is regulating the taxi service um i don't have a lot of faith right now in traditional institutions strength mm-hmm. um which pains me because unlike many people in the internet world, I actually, um, I think institutions can do a lot of good. I think regulation mm-hmm. can do a lot of good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, I think the political will has to be there mm-hmm. and the political will has to be attuned to boring things. Mm. So it's one thing to kind of say that you're going to have these like comprehensive data protection or customer protection um, bills, but what does that even mean? Mm. How can it actually get put into place? Mm. Um, in reality, the less hypey policies are probably the ones that are going to do the most good. Mm. Mm. So I think we have to get beyond the hype even in the policy realm. Okay. So one thing I just want to say yeah, that sure. kind of illuminates something I was trying to say before uh-huh. about the data economy yeah. is I do, th- I, something I'm concerned about is I think that that I think advertisers and others who seek to use data in various ways or to target in various ways mm-hmm. um, will are beginning will begin to find that they need less data mm-hmm. to make the decisions they want to make. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for example, I don't have to know everything about you in order to use a couple of key points mm-hmm. to plug you into a probabilistic model that I've developed using a variety of other data sources. Mm-hmm. So I actually don't, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so if I, if, and, and, and so I think that, that, and that's sort of what I mean about prediction. Yeah. Um, so we actually, it, if we say, oh, I'm protecting myself from being surveilled in every aspect of my life, but I'm, will advert- I'm obliged to give advertisers mm-hmm. the very basic details. Yeah. I can equally be find myself discriminated against or hyper targeted. <laughs> I just thought about that. That's basically an argument for an evil genius. Oh right? well, maybe I'm the one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> because if you if if he knows or evil genius knows yeah. what to use to yeah. to predict something, then it doesn't have all the. But yeah. I don't. But I actually don't know that you have to be a genius to do that because those systems are self-fulfilling prophecies. Mm. So if I say I have a few key data points about you, and that, and I plug that into my model, and I decide that that is what your, um, you know, what kind of micro loan I'm mm-hmm. going to give you, or what kind of advertisement I'm going to give you, it doesn't really matter if maybe you should have gotten a better rate on a loan, or you mm-hmm. should have gotten different advertising. Okay. Because I'm going to give you advertising, and my um, you know advertising clients are going to be happy with it. It's fine, 
Like, how do how would I know if you had gotten different advertising if it would be if it would be better? Or hmm. you know, I mean, in the or if your credit, you know, if your um, interest rate should have been different, how do I know? Okay. Um, I mean, for example, in the United <laughs> States, our credit scores mm-hmm. are tied to a few characteristics. Yeah. Um, and they determine a lot about our economic agency, what kind of credit cards we can get, whether or not we can get a mortgage, whether yeah. or not we can buy a car. But for example, paying rent on time, if you're a renter, mm-hmm. paying rent in full every month on time for decades doesn't figure into your credit score at all. Mm. And I could argue that mortgage or um, credit card companies could make more money if they knew how to better value renters. But it doesn't really matter to them. Hmm. You know, they can make money off of people um, with a high interest rate, and they can make money off of people with a low hmm. interest rate. Hmm. So these things, in many ways, are self-fulfilling prophecies, <laughs> and you don't have to be a genius to kind of set the terms of reality. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you very much um, for being here, for talking with us. Yeah. Uh, this has been Citizen D from Amsterdam. Um, what stay boring yes you know yes (laughs) learn to be interested in boring things (laughs) thank you again thank you